Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start us off with a prayer, and then I've got to run upstairs and watch the front door for somebody for a little bit. But um, just want to remind you all, we will not be meeting next week, which is Christmas Eve. Um, hope you all have a wonderful Christmas uh, season. You're please very welcome to join us here for Mass. Uh, on Christmas Day, we have Mass at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and noon, and then also at midnight, which I think I mentioned last week. Um, our Midnight Mass here is beautiful. Our full choir will be uh, there. Uh, they'll begin with sort of a music program about 30 or 40 minutes before Midnight Mass. So if you want to uh, join, please know that you're very, very welcome here, as you always are. Um, we'll start us with a prayer and turn over to Larry. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Almighty God, during this holy season, you give us the opportunity to prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus, among us, the day that the Word became flesh take our sins upon himself and bring them to the cross. We ask that you would help us to use well this final week of Advent and that you would open our minds and hearts to know you more deeply during this time together this afternoon, that we might love you and that all that we might say, think, and do would bring you greater glory and honor. We commend all these prayers to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Father. Oh, we got here. It's all this. Fantastic question. All right, so that's, we started, or at least that was one of the main things last week, was the resurrection of the body is central to, um, to God's revelation and to, um, yeah, and, and Christ. Um, so Christ rose from the dead with this body. There's always been in human history a kind of temptation to think, well, this body is um, uh, very imperfect. Right? It's the cause of um, uh, temptation on the one hand, sickness on the other, death on the other. And um, so we can see it as something negative. But the fact is, it's part of our identity. We're not angels. We're, um, um, we're human beings. And part of human nature is to have a body and um, God likes human nature, and he doesn't want to throw human nature away, but he wants to perfect human nature. And so to perfect human, to bring us into perfect happiness is to bring our nature into its fulfillment and our person into fulfillment. So our person comes into fulfillment through communion with God and one another, and that also involves the body, right? And our nature comes to fulfillment by being whole and entire. So God's plan for us isn't to throw this away, but to, um, um, to give it incorruptibility and glory, which means that the body will fully manifest um, the, what's invisible. Right? So right now, um, the heart is invisible, the body is visible, um, but um, in the resurrection, the, it's like um, one of my friends um, uses this phrase, in heaven will be all face, not in the sense that we won't will just be a gigantic face. But our whole bodies will um, show who we are in the way our faces now do. Right? And that body will no longer be the source of shame or temptation or weakness or, um, or anything negative. Aches and pains? No aches and pains. <laughs> um, um, so what we have to hold, so here's what we have to hold, and then I'm going to plead ignorance about all the rest. What we have to hold is that it's this body that rises from the dead. But that doesn't mean that it will be this body at, the, say, the moment of death. In other words, let's say I die at 97 or something. And, 
But um, it means that it'll be this body in the form that will most manifest our um, identity. So Jesus, right, he died at 33. So he, his risen body was that age, right? It's a good age. But he chose to have his wounds um, not taken away, right? So when he rose, right, the doubting Thomas wanted to stick his fingers into the wounds, which clearly were there and will remain forever. Because that, that remains because that shows who he is. He's died for us through those marks. And so those marks are super glorious. And that's about all that I can say. In other words, so, I mean, sometimes people say, well, all die at, and we'll all rise at the perfect age, 33 or something, you know, Jesus' age. We, we don't know. Yeah, but it'll be that form that most beautifully manifests who we are. But without any hindrance, right? Obviously, Jesus' wounds didn't um, hurt after he rose from the dead. Yeah. Pain and tears are wiped away. May I ask one more? Sure, you ask as much as you like. It's, um, it's never a bad thing to get purified, but it can be painful. But, so purification is super good because purification is growth. It's growth into what God wants um, for us for eternity, and it's growth into what I need to be to enter to see him face to face and enter into that perfect communion. And if that requires um, a purification that um, is painful because growth is always painful, Right? Think of, um, so kids sometimes when they have a growing spurt, they get you know, aches and pains from growing. And, um, and so yes, purgatory, it's, since we're going to be growing even more um, spiritually, will involve an aspect of, of pain in the purification. But not, we shouldn't think of it as punishment, but precisely as something that we can, um, um, something that makes us purified. Nothing to fear. Absolutely, it would be it would be ridiculous. And um, um, what we need to fear is sin, not the healing of it. Exactly, right? So nothing to fear. But you want to. Um, it's better to do our purgatory here. What do I mean by that? Um, so it's possible to live this life. Um, so it's reasonable to think that the saints pass through purgatory. They don't go there, and that's because here they did works of mercy that um, perfectly purified them. Um, and so we want to do our purgatory in this life. And Jesus shows the way to do it. It's all the different works of mercy, whether it's corp corporal or spiritual works of mercy. All right? And in other words, every act of love. Living, um, so today's second reading. Rejoice always. Um, pray constantly. Um, in every circumstance, give God uh, thanks to God. Discern what is good. And... Um, um, Keep away from what's evil. Basically, that's kind of the charter. Yeah. But yeah, no, we don't want to fear God's judgment. What we want to do is um, fear what um, turns us away from him. That's what, so Jesus says, don't fear you know, what anybody can do to your body. What you want to fear is um, what happens to our soul when we get turned into ourselves away from God and neighbor. All right, so we're going to turn the page now and start in on the, is that, did that anymore? Good? Okay, um, we're going to move, skip the second section. So we finished the first section, which ends with the last things. And the, the second section of the catechism is really important. 
And it, I'm not skipping because it's not important, but because I want it to be fresher in your minds before you receive the sacraments. So the sacrament section is on the sacraments by which we receive this life that we're going to talk about today. The third section of the catechism is on the Christian life, and basically Christian morality. So we're, I'm just switching section two and three, and we'll do section three first. And it's a long and magnificent section of the catechism, and I can't do justice to it in the number of times that we meet. But, um, but I just encourage you to read it yourself. The third part, it's a lifelong, there's a, um, a there are ways to cover the catechism. So there's a series, the catechism in a year um, on YouTube, which I recommend. Um, or just simply take some time to read some of the catechism um, as a lifelong learning thing. It starts out, so it has a great introduction. So this is from the, the big book, the, um, the full book. Um, its introduction to this third part says um, catechesis. So catechesis is teaching the faith. So catechesis about the Christian life has to reveal the joy and the demands. All right, so notice two things, joy and demands. Because in the past, I think um, Christian morality is, what do, what do you think of when I say Christian morality? Most people probably think of thou shalt not. Right, in other words, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And that's true. The, the Ten Commandments do have six don't do's, right? Um, but uh, five, I guess. But, um, well, yeah, the, uh, six. Um, but um, the key thing, and we're going to cover them, right? We'll cover the Ten Commandments. But um, the key thing is the positive, right? So the first commandment is to love. Um, Catechesis has to reveal the joy, and that brings about joy, right? So um, today, the third Sunday of Advent is Gaudete Sunday, which Gaudete in Latin means rejoice. It's Rejoice Sunday, and the second reading is from St. Paul, rejoice. Um, and so um, the Christian life brings joy. And this is really paradoxical, that what brings joy is what the world thinks is the opposite of it. Right? The, the world thinks that joy comes when you um, get what you want, even if what you want is disordered. Um, and Christian catechesis is that joy comes when you want the right things, not when you get what you want if that's disordered. Because if you get what you want and what you want is disordered, it actually, it's a dis it doesn't give you joy because that disordered thing can't give you rest and satisfaction. And so joy actually comes from changing what we are desiring. All right, and that obviously has demands. That's not easy to, to change. And therefore, we can't actually do it, right? So, Christian, so here's another, if the first misconception is Christian morality is about don't do this. Second misconception is that Christian morality is about gritting your teeth so as not to do them. And the fact is, our, we can't grit our teeth powerfully enough to do what Jesus asks us to do. In other words, we can't do it. And therefore, um, the mortal life is about the Holy Spirit who can do it in us. He gives us the power to do it. So the catechism says, it's a catechism of the Holy Spirit, the interior master of life according to Christ. Right? The Holy Spirit is Jesus' spirit. And he gives us his spirit so we can live his life. And the Holy Spirit is gentle, a gentle guest and friend who inspires, guides, corrects, and strengthens and lives inside us. And he gives us his grace so Christian moral life is about grace, and grace is precisely that 
what the Holy Spirit gives us to do what we just said. So it's by grace we are saved, and it's by grace that we can do works that um, are bear fruit for eternal life because they're moved by love. And it's also about the Beatitudes. Interesting. So Jesus, if you were to, um, what part of the Gospels does Jesus kind of give the most important teaching about morality? Anybody? It's, it's not hard. It's his most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Right? So the Sermon on the Mount, it's in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. And um, it's called on the Mount because it, that's the setting. It's not actually a mountain. It's in, he gave it in Galilee, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's on a hill. It could be called maybe the Sermon on the Hill. Um, and um, the first thing that he says there is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's called the Beatitudes because um, they, it's each, he starts with eight blessings. The poor and blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, uh, blessed are the, um, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who do mercy, who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the pure of heart. And each one has a reward with it. So blessed the poor in spirit, they shall, there's the kingdom. Blessed the meek, they shall inherit the land. Blessed the, um, those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed those who hunger and thirst after righteousness or justice because they shall be filled. Blessed the pure in heart. Blessed those who do mercy for they shall receive mercy. Blessed the pure in heart for they shall see God. And blessed those who are, um, um, who are persecuted for justice's sake um, for they shall, um, they shall receive the kingdom of God. I, Missed the seventh one. Blessed, uh, what's the seventh one? I need my Bible here. And those who reconcile, basically. And the blessed are the peacemakers is the seventh one. Right? Thanks. <laughs> Just failed my test. And for they shall be called children of God. All right, so Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount. And then he'll go later and say things like, you have heard that it was said not to commit adultery, and I say to you, don't even look at someone with lust. Um, you have heard it said, do not kill. And I say, do not call your neighbor, you know, a stupid idiot, or maybe a stronger word. Um, and so he does speak about what you shouldn't do. But it doesn't start there. Why is that important? Because in morality, morality is like a map. And what's the first thing? If, suppose you want to go somewhere. What's the first thing you look at in a map? Okay, where I'm, am I? And then, Where's north? okay, I, I want to know where north is, but I also want to know where I'm going to, right? You got it. Like, if, to use a map, I got to know where I'm going. Otherwise, the map's not going to help me. Um, and so, morality is like a map to get us to our destination, and that destination is heaven. And um, so that's why Jesus starts with the blesseds. He's starting really with the end and with the attitudes. So instead of starting with a bunch of do-nots, he's actually starting with the attitudes that we need to have. And those beatitudes, um, tell me, does the world say, is this the attitude of the world? Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom. No, right? The world says blessed are the rich, right? Everybody says that. And every, it seems like just about everybody wants that. But that, Jesus says the opposite. 
Um, and then, blessed are the meek. Is that what the world says? No, of course not. The world says, blessed are those who are self-assertive and trample on other people to get what they want. Right? And, and it's, again, the opposite. And, you know, blessed are the pure in spirit. The world says, blessed are those who, um, who satisfy all their desires. Um, and so Jesus' Beatitudes, they're positive, but they turn the world upside down. Right? It's really important. So Christian morality is, in some sense, the opposite of what we could call worldly wisdom or what the, um, the world teaches. I'm using the world, world here in the sense of kind of the dominant, you know, attitudes in every society. Exactly. Sure. In other words, it leads to love, right? In other words, um, yeah. So what what he calls blessed is what facilitates or um, precisely what the life of heaven will be, which is that of love. Great. And then it's a catechesis of sin. So yes, we do speak about sin. But um, sin in the proper theological sense of that which goes against love. Right? So you can't talk about one thing without implying something about its opposite. So love and sin are the two opposites. And, but if it were simply about sin, that wouldn't be very consoling because we all have that. But it's about sin and forgiveness. I know that's precisely how do I get out of that. Yeah, yeah and then it's a catechesis about the theological virtues. So I'm gonna, we'll talk about that later. But that, what that means is faith, hope, and charity. We'll do this next um, class. Charity is just another word here for love. Faith, hope, and love. Um, and those are called theological virtues because they're aimed at God. We believe in God, we hope in God, through God, and we love God and um, our neighbor who's made in God's image. Right? So that's why they're called theological, because they aim at God. Okay. All right, so that's our... Um, so the catechism starts out, the moral section, with human dignity. Right? So we can't understand um, sin or what we're, um, what we're made for without understanding our dignity. Right? And that dignity is we're made for God. And therefore... Um, in every human being made in the image of God and made for God, right? There's some, um, um, there's a call to holiness and a dignity greater than we can um, understand. So, and that's what we looked at earlier in the class, right? When we looked at man's creation, we said we were made in God's image and likeness with a spiritual and immortal soul, right? And so we said the odd thing about human nature last week is that we've got this mortal body and an immortal soul. And God's plan is not simply to get rid of the mortal body, but to make the body also immortal. With intelligence and free will, and we're ordered to God, and we're called, not just in soul, but also in body, to eternal beatitude. All right, so that's kind of the starting point. And we have to understand that about ourselves and our neighbor to, um, to act rightly. So how do we attain beatitude? So we attain beatitude, or heaven, um, through God's grace. In other words, we can't do it ourselves. And we'll talk a lot more about that, I think, next time.
Right? It's just it's what, I, it's what I was saying before. And Christian morality can't simply about gritting your teeth and trying harder. We don't have the power, and we don't need to have the power because Christ has the power, and he gives it to us. But we have to cooperate with that gift, and we call that gift grace, which makes us participants in the divine life. And again, I can say that, but I can't take in what that means. Right? So we're called to share God's life. Um, imagine, um, can a worm share human life? No, right? A worm's got worm nature and doesn't have human nature. A worm simply can't share human life. So how could we think human beings could share God's life? He's higher than us than we are compared to a worm. Um, and so naturally speaking, we couldn't know that this would seem ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous because God has the power to raise us up. He made us in his image, and he can elevate that. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but in, in Genesis, it speaks of man made in image and likeness. And some of the fathers of the church speak of the image as what we have by nature. We're naturally in his image. But the likeness is what we get by grace to, to share in his life. And it's something that we can always grow in more. We never lose the image, but we can always grow more in the likeness through the Christian life, right? Would it be um, uh, the first man, Adam, was he sharing in the life? Yes, yeah, great question. So God made Adam and Eve from the beginning already sharing in his life. And we can see that from two things, that he was walking, so God walked with them in the garden with intimate friendship. And we see it after the sin when they hid from that, in other words, that friendship got broken. And so we can see that before the friendship got broken, they had a harmony with God that's not natural, but supernatural. And secondly, we can see it from the fact that in the garden, there was this tree of life. And we shouldn't think simply human life, but it, the tree of divine life is how we can think of it. So yes, they were made with grace. That grace was lost by original sin, and now we get it back through Christ's merits and through the sacraments is the ordinary way and through prayer. Right? So the Christian life is about how we get that grace back. And here, this is the reason then for the second and third part of the catechism. Second part is we get that life back through sacraments. And then third, we get that life back through prayer. And once we've got it back, we can grow in it through, um, through living um, a life of faith, hope, and, and love. So the, yeah, Christ in the gospel points out the way that leads to eternal happiness, the Beatitudes. And the grace of Christ is operative in every person who, following a correct conscience, seeks and loves the true and the good and avoids evil. So I said the ordinary way that we get Christ's life is through the sacraments. But many people can't receive the sacraments because they never heard of them or weren't raised Catholic and um, didn't have the opportunity of encountering the church. And so the um, grace is given to all those who, um, seeking God, trying to live according to a correct conscience, that is, trying to live according to their conscience and clarifying their conscience when they're in doubt, and loving the true and the good, seek to avoid evil. Right, so this is how we said that it's, um, it's possible to be saved outside the church, by doing that, what the catechism describes here. 
right? But being in the church, we have huge advantages, and that is the sacraments and faith and, and um, the church's teaching, the teaching by which we see how much we've been loved first. Right? It's above all simply the gospel, seeing that Christ loved us to the death. Okay, why are the Beatitudes important for us? So why does Jesus start there? Right? Again, you've got to know the end. You've got to know your destination and desire it. The greater the desire for the destination, the more you're willing to sacrifice along the way. Right? So the Beatitudes um, take up the promises that God made to Abraham. And they depict the countenance of Jesus. So in those eight Beatitudes, starting with the poor in spirit, the meek, the, um, those who, um, who mourn, um, so Jesus mourning about sin, um, hungering and thirsting after justice, doing mercy, all of the Beatitudes, pure in heart, um, being a peacemaker, all of the Beatitudes are describing who Jesus is. Right? They're describing his character, which is the model for us. Right? And, so the, and then they reveal, so they characterize authentic Christian life and reveal its ultimate goal. Yours is the kingdom of heaven, all right? And they correspond to an innate desire. So innate simply means written in. Every, there's no human being um, who doesn't want to be happy, right? Everybody, it's like the only thing we come together in, right? Um, we can disagree about just about everything, but that will all agree that we want to be happy. Um, and even somebody in committing suicide in some way is still wanting to be happy, and that's why he's... And seeking to escape from suffering, right? It's just simply written in. But the problem is, so we, yes, we come together in all desiring happiness, but we don't know by nature what it consists in, right? And so the gospel, one of its purposes, not its least important purpose, is to show us what true happiness is. And Jesus does that in a very paradoxical way in the Beatitudes, Right? He's saying basically that living like that is true happiness, not what the world says. Um, so everyone has a desire for it, and um, that desire is like the motor of all human life. Right? But again, that desire doesn't necessarily point us in the right direction. Um, and so the right direction, so everyone desires happiness, um, but the fact is only God can give that happiness. And um, that, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's worthwhile taking a few minutes to show why that's true. And simply from human experience, we can see that when people look for something else other than God, let's suppose somebody puts, thinks that happiness is having um, the most amount of money. Right? There are lots of people out there right, who, who have that idea of happiness. What happens when, suppose they think that happiness is a million dollars. What happens when they now get a million dollars in their bank account? What do they find out? Not it's not enough. It's not nearly enough, right? There are a lot of other people who have more. And so what happens when you get 10 million in your bank account? It's not enough. What happens if you get 100 million in your bank account? It's not enough because there's still somebody who, what matters when you get a billion dollars in your bank account? It's not enough. And we can see that People who get wealthy don't actually stop searching for more. And there's a very simple reason for this. And um, human beings, 
Um, we are different than pigs, sorry. Um, but animals, brute animals that don't have reason, their instincts lead them to what's actually good for them. And they're happy with their pig pen and their little piglets and their you know, or whatever it may be. In other words, pigs are happy with pig life and they don't actually desire anything more. And that's because they're not rational and they don't have a universal. A universal means a concept. And so we have, so I'm sorry, this is philosophical here. But let me just indulge me for a minute. Every one of us, even a, a child, can make the idea, can understand the idea, the good. The good is a universal because it's not any particular kind of good. Animal, brood animals don't have universal because they don't have reason. And all that they know is this pig pen or this oats or these piglets. And they're happy with that. But a human being who has the universal, the good, how can I be happy if I don't have the whole good? All right, is a million dollars the whole good? Of course not, right? It leaves out love, family, relationships, tons of other things, virtue. Um, and in fact, no particular good. All right, let's suppose somebody else thinks that it's power. I'm going to be happy if I become the president of the United States. All right, are presidents of the United States, do they look happy? No. <laughs> Not usually. Or, you know, Pope or something. Um, because that's not the whole good. And so it's totally impossible for a human being to rest, to be happy in some particular good, because it's not the whole good. And I'm always going to be desiring more. All right, is there someone who is the whole good? God. God is infinite good. All right, we can't see him in this life. And therefore, we can't fully attain him and have union with him in this life fully. But we can, as we saw, we can have friendship with he who is infinite good in this life. And that actually gives us true happiness already in this life. Right. In this life, we can't have perfect happiness because we can't perf have perfect union with him because we can't see him. Right? But the whole promise of heaven that we looked at last time, that again, easy to say but hard to sink in, is that in heaven we will see God face to face and have a union with him like a bride and a groom. And we can't imagine that, but that would, is the only thing that will give us rest. In other words, we, it's impossible. So if somebody's seen God and, and has union with God, that's perfect. Can they desire anything else? What do you think? No. no. Because if you've got infinite good, you can't desire anything else. But if I have a, a million dollars, I can still desire billions of things that aren't included in that. Right, and so this is why so many people are simply totally wrong-headed in how they think to go about doing what everybody desires and finding happiness. Right? And what, the, what Jesus teaches is simply what's written on the human heart. Only God can give us rest. There's a famous line of St. Augustine, right? At the beginning of his confessions, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Right? And it's just simply built in. There's nothing, I, I deny that. Right? I can say, I don't believe it, but um, I will be miserable until I rest there. All right, let's look at, um, so that's the first section here. Second section is on human freedom. Human freedom is part of what makes us in the image and likeness of God. And it's, so, on the one hand, the, the natural desire for happiness is built in. I, 
I'm not free in that regard. So we're not free not to desire happiness, but we're free to desire this means or that means or some other means. And we know this by human experience that we, that's part of human dignity is that we're free to act or not to act, right? I could have decided, I'm not gonna teach RCA and stay home. All right, that would be stupid, but, um, and I would miss you. But, um, but I'm free to act or not act because I'm a human being, right? And you could have come or, and you did, or stayed home. To do this or to do that, right? You're an RCA for the Catholic Church, but you could be an RCA for, I don't know, um, to be a, a Muslim. Um, all right, they don't call it RCA, but something, ah, sorry. Um, to act or not to act, to do this or to do that, to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. Right? It characterizes properly human acts. If I'm not free, it's not properly human act. There are a lot of things um, in which we're not free. For example, when I'm asleep. If I snore and my wife pokes me when I'm asleep, that's not a human act because I didn't choose to snore and I couldn't do anything about it. All right. and she could do something about it by prodding me. Um, and so that's not what we're talking about. So when we talk about free human act, we're talking about the things that we can choose to do or not to do, not about things that happen. Or similarly, if I'm you know, in a coma, I'm not um, responsible for what I do. Or if I'm drunk, I'm not responsible. I'm responsible for getting drunk, but not for what I do when I have lost the use of reason or you know, on drugs or whatnot. Okay, um, so we're talking about, and we call those properly human acts, those that are free. And, if you think about it, what makes us free is that we can deliberate. Deliberate is what we do when we're choosing to do this or that. Right? Should I go to class today or stay home? That's deliberation. The more one does what is good, sorry, the more, the freer one becomes. That's really interesting. So all of us are free by nature, but freedom grows or can shrink. And this is a, something, um, uh, so it's it proper to human nature. Um, and we simply see it in this, that if I act well, it's easier today, let's say, it's going to be easier the next time. Because um, I'm starting to form a habit. And if I act well 10 times, it'll be much easier. And we call that virtue. Virtue is what happens when our freedom gets strengthened by using it well. Virtue. Okay, let me get rid of all this. And its opposite is vice. So if I use my freedom well, um, it gets easier for me. I get a facility. It's like it's similar to take sports or music or, or the arts. Right? So um, somebody who plays basketball 10,000 times, they get a facility, a readiness, and a joy in playing. And this person who never plays um, is the opposite, right? Um, and so there's a, playing basketball gives you a freedom to do basketball acts. And similarly, you know, with the piano or violin or, or something like that. Um, and the same thing is true in our moral lives, right? And we tend to think, everybody recognizes that that's true about sports and music and art. Um, but it's equally true about um, good actions, right? So we need a habit of good actions that makes us freer. Freer in this sense that, hey, let me, I find, 
The catechism doesn't do this, but I find it helpful to distinguish three senses of freedom. For, between, and from. Most people, when they think about freedom, they think about freedom from. And so, in other words, what's freedom? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And that's true. That's, I'm not saying it's not a part of freedom, but it's the lowest, the least important. Freedom from somebody you know, tying me up or constraint. And normally, when we think about freedom, we're thinking about freedom between this or that. Right? Should I come to class or, or not? And, but the most important part is freedom is for something. We've got freedom because we naturally desire happiness. Let's suppose I choose, I use my freedom between to choose, let's say, sin that doesn't actually make me happy. The more I choose that, the more I become a slave to what I've chosen, right? And the easiest way to see this is with addiction. If somebody, let's say somebody um, drinks in a disordered way a thousand times, and they were prone to this, they become an alcoholic. And once one becomes an alcoholic, I'm no longer free to take two drinks and then simply stop. And so you can see, so Jesus says a strong thing about this, that he who sins becomes a slave of sin. Whereas he says he comes to set us free. The truth will set you free. Right? And so in human life, yes, we have this freedom between, but if I make bad use of it, I lose or diminish my freedom for what actually makes me happy. And so what we can grow in, the freedom that we can grow in is this kind. Freedom for what actually fulfills us, what we're made for. That's the meaning there. The more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. Freedom attains its perfection when it's directed to God, right? So we said that happiness, in reality, comes from union with God. Freedom implies the possibility um, of choosing between good and evil here on earth. In heaven, so here on earth, this freedom between includes good and evil, but it's not only between good, it's also between good number one and good number two. In heaven, will we, will be, Will we be free in heaven? What do you think? Yes. yes, right? In the sense that we'll be free for the good. We'll be free to choose between, I don't know, singing this thing or singing that. I'm sorry. In other words, we'll be free between goods in heaven. But we won't be free in this sense to choose evil. Because that's not actually, um, that's part of our condition here on earth. And the reason for that, we spoke a little bit about last time, it's because this life isn't the end. This life is a trial to get to the end. And part of our trial, right, it's like Olympic trials. Part of the Olympic trials is obstacles, right? A good coach puts various obstacles to test you. And so in this life, um, we've got a freedom because God wants us to choose him freely. And he offers us himself, and other things that are less than him, infinitely less. And he gives us the freedom to choose, right? But in heaven, when we see him 
face-to-face, we won't have that kind of freedom. So it's, if somebody were to have answered that in heaven, are we free? And somebody says no. That's true in part. We won't be free for this. But in heaven, yes, we'll be fully free for the good, and we'll be free to do it in one way or another way or another way. Oh, absolutely. So freedom from in heaven will be perfect. Here, we don't have a, a freedom from um, tons of things, and that's part of our trial. Right? That's right. In heaven, this freedom from will be made perfect. We'll be free from evil, and, and that's the last petition in the, in the Our Father, right? To free us from all evil. And so we'll have in heaven the perfect freedom, perfect freedom for God, perfect freedom from everything that's contrary to him, and a perfect freedom to choose between goods. And, but here on earth, and that freedom between also includes good and evil. Okay, great. Okay, and freedom and responsibility. So freedom is a very good thing. Because if we didn't have freedom, we wouldn't have responsibility. All right, somebody might think, well, responsibility is not a good thing because um, it leads to consequences. That's, it's true it leads to consequences, but that's a really good thing. And the fact that we've been given by God a freedom to choose, um, to act for him, um, that enables us to be his co-workers. And to be a co-worker with God means co-responsible for good. And true, of course, that's not the first thing we think of, I think. Right? We think that responsible means I'm also responsible for evil, and that's true. Right? But that's not... So we're given responsibility precisely for the good. Right? To be Christ's co-workers in making this world um, in accordance with his gospel. Um, and so that's a glorious thing. It's like parenthood. So is it, parenthood is a huge responsibility, right? You've got lives that you're given to form. Um, and that's a glorious thing. But it does mean that there are consequences if I abuse that responsibility, right? Adam had a huge responsibility as our first father. And in some sense, all of us were entrusted to him. That was a very good thing, even, but he didn't make good use of it. All right, so responsibility is a good thing. Um, that's an understatement. Responsibility is an incredibly good thing because it enables us to be cooperators with God. And, and so freedom makes us responsible, but, and that's only true, though, for what's voluntary, right? So I'm not responsible for what, you know, snoring in the middle of the night. So responsibility can be diminished. Right, so this is going to be important for later when we look at um, the nature of sin. So if my freedom is diminished such that I couldn't properly deliberate, what I do can't be, won't be the gravest kind of sin. Can't be. Because I won't be responsible for what I couldn't deliberate about. All right, so um, responsibility can be diminished or even eliminated, canceled, by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, inordinate attachments, or habit. Um, now, it depends on the case. We'll, we'll come back to this. Um, questions on that right at the moment? It's just, it's 
it's really common sense we're talking about. Right? If somebody's drunk, they're not um, responsible. They're, I'm responsible when I'm sober for going into a bar and planning, let's say, to get drunk. That I'm 100% responsible for. Micah? So some of those things are out of our control, like being afraid. Mm -hmm. or, um, but then some of them, it seems like we do it to ourselves and make ourselves Right. Yeah. So let me. So a habit there at the end, yeah. or attachment. So, um, it, let's suppose somebody. Let's go back to our addiction example. The um, the culpability of um, an addict is lessened by the habit, but in some sense, the getting of that habit was what's most I'm most responsible for because that took place over years, and therefore it was not just a you know a, a second of my um, deliberation, but years of my choices. And so in that sense, we're more um, responsible for our habits than anything else. Because that's what we've ratified through the dimension of time and history. Um, and this can be, uh, um, yes, that's heavy. Because <coughs> And, and we know, human experience, I can't just undo what I built up over 10 years, just like that. Um, but it can be forgiven like that when I turn away from it. But I'm still going to have um, the alcoholic. Let's say an alcoholic has made a good conversion. He's um, made a good confession. He's in the grace of God. Um, but he still always will have a, a disordered inclination as a consequence of sin. So sin has consequences. And those consequences can um, reduce culpability. All right, so that's the way we should take that last thing. OK, we have a right to exercise freedom. It's, it's in us. So this is here is speaking more about civil freedom. So um, freedom has all different senses, right? It's one of these gigantic words. Um, so the right to exercise freedom um, in society has to be respected because God gave it to us for a reason, so that we could use it well. Right? And so any rightly ordered society wants to maximize a good use of freedom, but to limit any use of my freedom that's going to harm others. Right? So this is in the civil realm. And so in a good society, there should be... Um, a respect for freedom, and in a particular way, what the catechism is emphasizing here is um, religious freedom. Religious freedom is a great good because um, we have a duty to seek God and to follow him according to our conscience. And that conscience, following him according to conscience, is more important than following him according to, I don't know, the civil law of any country. Right? And so if we were living in a country, let's say, in which which didn't um, allow for religious freedom, like this country back in its beginnings, certain columns, colonies, um, there wasn't a right for Catholics, say, to worship um, according to the Catholic faith. That would not be a well-ordered society. Right? And the reason for that is because we have a, a fundamental duty to seek God um, freely and to worship him according to conscience. And if civil society restricts that, they're restricting something that God has given us for um, to get to him. Um, now, obviously, there are limits to this. Um, what if somebody says, all right, I should have, there should be freedom to worship God, and I happen to be a Satanist. And 
you know, I do satanic cult. Um, society can put limits for the common good. Right? And so that's why the within the limits of the common good is the last words here. Right? So if my worship of God involves, I don't know, sacrificing babies or something, yes, no well-ordered society would allow that. Questions on? Okay. Um, so human freedom is weakened by original sin and successive sins. So this is what we said before, that the more we sin, the more we become a slave of sin. So freedom isn't simply you know, an, um, a constant. It's something that ought to grow in us through grace or can shrink in us through sin. Christ has set us free so that we remain free. Right? And so the, this is part of the joy, that rejoice that we said at the beginning, is that the more we live in accordance with grace, the freer we become and the freer we feel. And so that gives a joy in the Christian life. With his grace, the Spirit makes us, leads us to spiritual freedom to make us free co-workers in the church and in the world. Questions on anything? Uh huh? Um, this is a little bit of a devil's advocate. Okay. How would the church define the common good if like, there are different opinions of what the common good is in society, like, for example, abortion or whatever? Right. Different yeah, no, great question. So the, the catechism doesn't. Later on in the catechism, but we won't have time to go into it. So let me give a quick answer right now. So there's going to be a section later on on the common good. So common good means what's really good, all right? So not some erroneous opinion about what would be good. So what's really good for the whole, right? That's the, so basically there are two words, common and good. The common means for the whole society and not just for me as a private individual. And the good means what's really good. And obviously, so God is the common good of the whole universe, right? He's resting in him is what's really good for us. Um, when we speak about a society, though, so normally we speak about the common good, let's say, of the United States or of the church or of Missouri or something like that. Um, and when we're speaking like that, um, if it's in the civil order, the common good is going to be a right ordering of society so that human beings can flourish in reality. And that's going to mean, in practice respect for human rights. And therefore, starting with the first and most basic, the right to life. So something like abortion can't be for the common good if it's um, precisely not defending a fundamental right of the most defenseless and innocent. We'll come back to that when we look at the fifth commandment. Um, Etc. But the, the common good is, um, it's, again, the higher up, you, if you're up in the clouds, yes, we can all agree on it. But once we start to look, what does that actually look like in a given society, we can have a difference about how to get there. But basically, it's going to be respect for rights. It's going to be respect for um, the patrimony of morality and faith. That's going to be a key part of the, the common good. Can I, can I uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what you determine to be good for society, it's basically what you and what is good for the human person writ large. 
So we know what's good for society based on our anthropology, what we believe um, man is, and I mean mm -hmm. man in the general sense, mm -hmm. what the human person is and what the human person is made for. So yeah. anything yeah. that excludes a, a transcendent understanding of human, of human nature is, is not going to be a rightly ordered common good. Does that make sense? Sure. And the easiest example maybe of that is... Um, Atheist communism, as it was you know, practiced in the Soviet Union in the 20th century, right? So a system, and they put it forth, right? So Lenin and you know, the revolutionaries who set up the Soviet Union put it forth in the name of the common good. We want to have a society in which you know, there's a maximization of, um, to those, um, um, how does it go, to, um, that there'll be, um, every need will be met, et cetera. Um, but the fact is that that was the system of probably of all human systems ever devised most contrary to the common good, precisely because it excluded what's most good and what human beings are most for by taking away every right to religious liberty in the most absolute fashion. Yeah. yeah. So in the name of the common good, they removed the actual common good of the universe. Yeah, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> But anyway, we'll come back to that later. But um, the point is, as Angelina said, to rightly understand the common good, we have to see first what's good for persons, right? Because the, the common good is what's going to be good for all of us as persons coming together in society. Okay. I'm going to switch gears now. And we're going to look at um, what makes a human act good or evil. Right, so this is kind of preparing us to speak about sin. Um, but it, it applies equally to the good and to the evil. What makes a human act good or evil? By human act, though, we mean one that's um, free, not what I do when I'm asleep or in a coma. Right, so a human act, um, and what the catechism teaches here, it's really simple. This is one of the things I hope you come away with. Um, so it, it's really simple. Um, the first and most important thing that makes an act good is what it is, this might be too obvious. So there are certain things that I choose that are always going to be evil and other things that by their very nature are good. So suppose that what I'm choosing is to murder an innocent person. Here, I'm just going to murder Greg here. And that by its very nature is choosing something that is evil by its object. The object here isn't Greg, it's killing an innocent human being. That's, that's what we mean. So sorry about the terminology here. The use of the word object, um, the object chosen, is not so easy to explain. And it's the best, it's simply common sense. The object chosen isn't simply something purely material. For instance, I don't know, let me take again the theft in now. Um, so the object chosen you might think is a book. But the, the, what we mean in morality, when we, the object here is taking a book that's not mine. That's what I just did. Um, suppose this book actually was mine, and I had lent it to Lawrence, and I take it and put it in my, that, that's a good act, right? I'm taking what's mine. But if it's not a, mine, and it's his, and I take it, then my object there isn't simply a book, it's a book that's not mine. Does that make sense? Well, let's take another silly example. Suppose I, um, I push somebody. Um, what's the moral object? 
Let's suppose I push them out of the way of an incoming, of an oncoming car or train. What are, what's my moral object? Saving someone's life. Let's suppose I do the exact same pushing, but I push someone into oncoming traffic. What's my moral object? Murder. Do you see? In other words, it's not simply a physical thing. It's what reason grasps that's essential in what I'm doing. And it's, and it's something that we all do by common sense. You don't need a course to do this. Everybody, it's like when you go to the zoo and you say, all right, that's a turtle, that's you know, a lion. We're able to distinguish one species of animal from another. Here we're distinguishing one moral species, theft, murder, um, saving a life, giving alms. These are different moral objects. And we naturally, once we get to the age of reason, are able to distinguish them. Right, that's the first thing that determines whether an act of good is good or evil. Why is this important? Because very often, systems of morality eliminate this first thing. And it's hard to understand because it seems so obvious. Um, let's look at the other two. In addition to choosing the right thing, let's suppose I, I, um, save, I push Lawrence out of the way of incoming traffic and I save his life. Good thing, right? But let's suppose my intention in doing that is, I don't know, to, to steal from him afterwards or something. <laughs> um, in that case, my object was good, but my intention was bad. Does everybody see that? A more common case is, let's suppose I do something good, give alms. But the reason I'm giving alms is I want my name up in a big plaque so that everybody can see it. Um, in which case, my intention was vainglory. My almsgiving was good, right? So that's the object, but my intention was bad. And it can be the other way around, right? Robin Hood. Suppose Robin Hood is stealing um, from, in other words, he's taking what's not his so that he can give it to somebody that he thinks is more needy. Um, his intention might be good, right? Giving to you. But still, the object was evil. Does everybody see that? Um, all right. Yes, the action is here. So I'm going to get to that. In order to have a good act, what do you need? All three of these things have to be good. All right, so absolutely right. That good intention, and that's why we put the object first. A good intention in doing evil doesn't make it right. Caiaphas, think about Caiaphas in the gospel. So Caiaphas was worried that if Jesus um, continued preaching, more people would come to him and Rome would... Um, take away the temple or something like that. And so better that an innocent man die be, in effect, better that an innocent man be lynched than that the whole common good, right? So can you do that? Can you allow somebody to be lynched who's innocent and you know is innocent so that, you know, um, some other evil doesn't happen? And the answer is no, right? All three have to be good. Third thing is the circumstances. So the circumstances are those things that surround an act. So let's suppose... I'm doing a good thing. Let's say I'm teaching here. All right, it's a good thing. I'm doing it for the right intention to um, teach you. And let's suppose the circumstances are that I didn't prepare for class at all. And I come here unprepared and teach badly. Um, is my act good? Well, it was good in its object and intention, but no, because it was bad in the circumstance. Or maybe another silly example. Let's suppose taking a walk is a good thing, and you're taking a walk for exercise, but it just so happens that it's during class time. Um, and so you're actually cutting class is what you're yeah. So in order for an act to be good, what has to be the case? All three need to be good. So the circus, this last one is, 
let's suppose, let's take eating as an example. Suppose I'm eating lunch to, um, let's say, for health, um, and um, I'm uh, doing it, yeah, so I'm doing it for a good intention, um, but let's suppose I'm overeating or something like that. Um, then, again, we'd say the same thing, good object, good intention, but bad circumstances. So for an act to be good, we want to have all three. What's going to be the most important? The first, because that's what I'm directly choosing. And then the second, right? Why am I doing it? And only last, the third. Part of the third is what I foresee to be the consequences, right? So if, um, that's part of prudence. I want to, let's say I want to teach, I want to teach well, um, and I um, foresee that, I don't know, um, I want to try and teach in such a way that it will actually help. Um, we can't fully foresee what's going to be the most. And so that's why you can't just make this last one the only important thing. Some ethicists make everything about the consequences. It doesn't matter what you chose, doesn't matter why you chose it, as long as, in fact, it makes um, for more prosperity in the world or something like that. Um, first of all, we can't even know that. And second, that really is up to God. What's most in our freedom is to choose um, something good. Uh No, right, no, fantastic. So in order to be evil, what has to be the case? Any one evil, especially the first though, and then the second, and then the third, right? Because something might be good in its object, good in its intention, but somewhat disordered because of bad circumstances. So that's gonna be less important depending, it's always gonna be less important, the circumstances, but still it affects it. Exactly, the means does not justify the end because the means is what you're actually choosing. That's your object. The end is what you're intending. So both have to be right. Right, this is so important. And so you talk about evil versus imperfect? Okay, so the imperfect might be on the circumstances, but evil is gonna be above all, first and foremost, in the object, right? Something that, and what do we mean by evil? in its object, something that by its very nature can't be something that, I, that God wants, can't be something that's in accord with the golden rule. All right, so murder, obviously I don't want to be murdered and therefore I can't murder my neighbor. Right? So I'm gonna come back to that, the golden rule, as the criterion um, of what makes something um, evil. Right? Imperfect, though, just simply means, so um, uh, could have been better in some way or other. Did, did you want to say more about that? I was that? thinking, like, let's say I offer a prayer to God. Okay. It's an objectively good Yes. Mm -hmm. But let's say I'm 10 Odd. years old okay. and I'm offering a prayer to God to, to like, make mommy get me that you know, <laughs> present. It's a very selfish okay. thing. It's not, like, necessarily... Okay. Uh, Okay. Um, like, just a, like, we don't have to be perfect on all three of those things for God to accept our acts. That's right, that's right, and that's the circumstance. The fact, so, in this life, our, there are, in all of our good works, um, there are always going to be some circumstances that are imperfect. And that's really important to distinguish this. So, if it's simple, what makes an object a grave sin 
is not going to be those circumstances, right? That, so the child praying for something that could have been more perfect, um, praying for world peace instead of my bicycle or something like that. Um, right. That, that maybe makes it a little less perfect, but it doesn't make it a sin. Whereas if I'm praying for um, something evil to happen to somebody, then that would be something that one can't ever rightly do, yeah. right? And that would be evil, not simply imperfect. Like we talk about, um, like, I'm confessing my sins out of fear of going to hell versus love of God. Like that's mm -hmm. perfect versus uh -huh. perfect. But they're still both good. Right, 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 right. I think it's just hard for me to see. I know that feeling is wrong, but it's hard for me to see, like, for example, a mother feeling food. Ah, great. Okay, okay, that's not wrong, actually. And we'll come to that later on when we look at the four, the, um, the, that commandment, right? The, the seventh commandment. Um, so stealing has a definition, and it's taking what's not mine. If somebody is starving, and in order to feed their family, they have to take something, that actually is theirs in God's intention. God's intention is that the goods of the world be so distributed that people don't starve to death and are, aren't unable to feed their families. But only in that case, right? And it's easy to um, stretch that too far. But that would not be stealing, okay? Yeah, and in something similar, it's like with killing, right? Um, the murder is, is precisely defined as killing an innocent deliberately. So we'll, we'll look at those kinds of questions when we go through the commandments. So we still want to keep that. It's always wrong to steal, and no circumstance is going to make that right. But that wasn't stealing, right? And similarly, you know, in self-defense, I stop someone from killing my family, and that's not murder. It's still always wrong to choose murder. Okay? All right. Okay, are there acts that are always wrong? Illicit just means here morally wrong. And the answer is yes. Right? And this is really important. There are certain acts that by their object are never worthy of being chosen, right? Like murder, um, adultery, right? There's no, I can never rightly choose adultery. Choosing such acts entails a disorder of the will. And in every case, if I choose something like that, I'm actually going against my conscience. Right? Because everyone's conscious. Think of this. A terrorist, you know, the terrorists in 9-11, let's say. Um, they, they were going against their conscience in killing innocent people. Right? Because that's simply written on the heart. It can't, um, there are certain things that you can't not know. And so choosing such acts is never justified by appealing to the good effects which could possibly result from them. We're going to look at this later when we look at, say, just war and, and what one can do, what one can't do. But um, an example of something that you can't do, even for the good effects, is, say, drop a nuclear bomb on innocent civilians um, so that you can get the emperor you know, to surrender. I can't do murder to get some good. That's not the same as in a just war, taking out a military site, even if I foresee some civilians will be killed. We'll come back to that later on. That's called double effect. In other words, I can do a good thing, 
even though I foresee that there are going to be some bad consequences that I can't avoid. That's actually, if we go back to our thing here, that's part of the circumstances. Right? So a good thing is self-defense. Um, and if I foresee that someone will be killed in my self-defense, I don't like it, but it doesn't make my act evil or make it murder because its object there was something different, self-defense. The difficulty here is judging what the object is. All right. Mm -hmm. so that's why they have cities of refuge yeah. mm -hmm. right? so then they can determine the circumstances mm -hmm. okay. okay all right I'm gonna, we got five more minutes all right just very briefly part of morality and has to do with passions um, pa I'm just going to be brief, really brief here I want to get to something after this so passions are our emotions just a fancy word for our emotions and um, no, he's not. Yeah, I don't know where he went to. Well, there was, there was some folk having a sacramental emergency. So okay, sorry. Yep. Um, so passions, simply our emotions, are usually not directly voluntary. And so they're not either good or bad in themselves, but they're good in, or bad insofar as we use them for good. Right? That makes them good. Or use them for evil. Um, so they can be taken up into the virtues or vices, and we can't simply get rid of them. There's a lot more to say about that, but I'm going to skip that so I can get to this last point. Moral conscience. Moral, so those three things that we mentioned, object, um, intention, and circumstances, we evaluate the object in our conscience. Conscience literally means knowing with. That's the con. Con means with. So it's like science with, literally the word. And what it means is, when I'm deliberating, I can't not know certain things. And part of it is I can't not know that if I'm deliberating doing murder, that that murder is evil. And it's my conscience that's going to make that known to me as I'm deliberating. So what is conscience? It's a judgment, a judgment of reason when I'm thinking about doing something that's going to tell me, don't do that. It's a judgment about whether an act is good or evil. And it's how we can say, um, so it's like you go to the zoo, that's a frog, that's a, um, a lion. That's how we say that's a murder, and that is, not, is something I can never do. Right? So our conscience is, and everybody has it who gets to the age of reason. Right? Children don't have conscience in the full sense before the age of reason. And basically, the age of reason is being able to see first moral principles. I'm going to skip for just a second. First moral principles. What are first moral principles? The most obvious is, is in some sense, too obvious. Good should be done. Evil should not be done. Right? That's the most obvious. There's nobody who doesn't know that. The problem, though, is what is good and what is evil, right? And then, so it's the next one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or do unto your neighbor as you'd want them to do unto you. It can be formulated in different ways. We call it the golden rule. It's the, we could say the next, after do good, do good to whom? Not just me, but my neighbor as myself. And it comes from recognizing, so this is the age of reason. When a child can see my sister is another self. And therefore I have to act in such a way, right, to my brother or sister or mom and dad, 
as I would want them to act to me. Right? So the golden rule is at the heart of every um, discernment of conscience, that I should do that this is good or this is evil. Um, God is to be loved above all things. That's also a first principle. The common good should be sought over the private good and to give to everyone their due. That's justice. Right? All of these are first principles. And conscience, conscience is, presupposes those principles and applies them, applies them to a particular. So um, conscience is that by which I see that this thing that I'm deliberating about is good or evil. And I see it because I, am, I can see that it fulfills the golden rule or doesn't. Does that make sense? So conscience is a judgment that I make in the here and now about my actions as good or evil. It doesn't mean I will follow it. Human experience shows us 10 trillion examples of people who know better and choose against their own conscience. Why do we choose against our own conscience? Because I want to get something even though conscience tells me I shouldn't. In other words, attachment is what leads people, I'm attached to some end, right? I want this, you know, whatever it may be, this position, I want this satisfaction, um, even though I know it goes against the golden rule. And so it's always a sin to act against conscience. Because conscience is the law of God in our heart. Because it's really God saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm, the good is to be loved above all things. Right? So it's God speaking to us in our conscience. And so we never, ever, ever do good to act against it. Our conscience, though, needs to be formed. And we can pick up here next time. We form our conscience by um, learning more about what is in accordance with human good. So for example, the whole point of reading the moral part of the catechism is to enlighten our conscience more. In other words, to help our conscience be a better guide. Because a lot of times we're perplexed, right? There can be occasions in which it's clear I shouldn't do this. But there can be other times in which we're uncertain what is the right thing to do. And that's where we need to um, seek more guidance for our conscience. Right? And that's part of the reason for moral theology and the catechism. Questions on that? So we always have to act in accordance with conscience, but we need to um, form, so that the normal way we speak about it is forming our conscience better. If I have a habit of sin, a habit of disregarding my conscience, it gets easier to disregard it the next time, right? I think human experience shows this. If I disregard my conscience once, it gets a lot easier the next time and easier the next time, and, and that's a really terrible thing. That's exactly right. And sure, sure, and and that can make it even worse, right? Because I get rewards in this life for betraying my own conscience, and that's like the worst thing that can happen to a person is to get rewarded for killing what's most sacred in us, which is our, our conscience, because that's God speaking in us. Um, 
but it never gets totally extinct. Nobody can fully kill it. And a good example of this in, in literature is um, Shakespeare's play Macbeth. Right? This Lady Macbeth who is, instigates her husband to do all these murders so he can become king. Right? And he, gets, he does become king. But she starts to see blood everywhere. And she tries to out, out, damn spot. And, and she can't. Right? So conscience doesn't get killed. And it doesn't even get killed in hell. And that's actually the penalty in hell is that conscience reproaches um, without end. Right, but it never can be totally killed. Um, but it can be deformed, and so we want to form it. Sorry, on that sober, um, but the whole point of uh, moral catechesis is, is to form our conscience better. Great, great gift. Sorry, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, almighty God, for the gift of your revelation, for this season of Advent, and for the blessing of your Becoming man in our midst as a baby, help us to prepare for Christmas. Um, and we'll come together in three weeks. And um, we thank you through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we got two weeks off. Um,